I kind of grew up as a fan of glam rock music when I was a little kid. And those artists always seemed like they were from another planet. And the clothes that they wore seemed very unattainable. It, later, I found out that they were made by their friends, family, girlfriends, husbands, so on. But they seemed very unattainable. But when punk happened, and it's kind of similar to, you know, other cultural movements that have sort of taken culture and taken it to very much a sort of street access, you know, that's happened throughout the history of popular culture. And punk sort of took creation and made it accessible to everyone. So if you're a writer, you could, you know, make a fanzine and photocopy it and sell it at punk shows for, you know, 10 cents or whatever, and communicate your ideas to the world, which today you can do on social media much easier. With punk, you could take your flared trousers and cut the flare off the side and duct tape it together. You know, you didn't have to learn how to sew. Similarly, you could pick up a guitar, as I did, and play completely out of tune, as I did and still do, and sing completely out of tune, as I did and still do. And you could make a noise, and your friends, peers would come to a show and see you because everybody was sort of part of the whole. The people on stage and the people in the audience were the same people. Keenan Dupty is a British fashion designer and musician based in New York City. Dupty studied fashion design at St. Martin's School of Art in London and is a member of the Council of Fashion Designers of America. He's also a mentor for the master's program in fashion styling at Polymoda and a program director at the Masters of Professional Studies in Fashion Management at Parsons School of Design. Whew, that's a lot. In addition to launching his own label, Slinky Vagabond, in the 1990s, Keenan would later work for brands like Gwen Stefani's Lamb, John Vervados, and launch the Walmart line for David Bowie. Dufty also co-authored the book Rebel Rebel Anti-Style, which traced the roots of rebel style and emphasized the cultural impact of punk and the new romantic era. I had the opportunity to sit down with Keenan to talk about his journey as a designer, his life in the music industry, along with some of his favorite fashion moments of all time. Check it out. Hello, Keenan. I'm just so thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with you. I mean, what a life. What a life. I'm, I'm thrilled to chat with you and I'm thrilled to be, I, 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 I need to add a fashion moment mug to my mug collection. I will send you one. Oh, oh, oh. No, I'm going to buy one. I'll buy one from this. <laughs> so how, I mean, how's everything going? Like, you know, teaching during a pandemic, how are the students doing? I mean, this is a crazy time. It's a crazy time. Yeah. It's been a, a uh, interesting 16, 17 months. Um, yeah. You know, we uh, the 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 course that I was the founder of, we actually were in the process of launching an online uh, component to that course, oh, wow. um, which was created in the most part by my colleague Joshua Williams, who's kind of a, a really an expert in uh, the sort of online delivery of education. Wow. And um, so we were actually able to uh, to sort of move to that in the middle of well, actually sort of May of last year. Wow, uh, quite. Um, somewhat seamlessly um, because we had a lot of the content already prepared and uh and, and that's all credit to Joshua 
Um, and he also launched a, a podcast too for, oh, awesome. for our students. So I love it. Yeah, so there are a lot of different kind of, you know, elements of communication going on. And we, our students graduated last August, the first year. Wow. Um, we had 32 students in the first year of the program. We're just about to accept about 160 <laughs> this wow. year. So wow. Tremendously. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, wow. it's, it's a growth spurt. So something's working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's also like, you know, just being stuck inside for so long, just really thinking about, you know, what do I love doing? What's my passion? And really taking an opportunity to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, with the so the course that I, I I'm not director of the course anymore. Joshua Williams, Professor Joshua Williams, took over as director this year. Um, but the uh, the course is really is called um, Masters in Prof- Fashion Management. Masters of Professional Management. Yes. So it's really about anchoring the 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 kind of business and entrepreneurial side of the industry to the aesthetic side yeah. so we're kind of empowering future leaders uh future entrepreneurs and um and, and looking at the pillars of what the new school stands for wh- which it's kind of always stood for historically from when it was founded which is being you know diverse inclusive equitable yeah. sustainable um you know sort of aware of social justice and and an activist in terms of social justice. And we're trying to find ways of of activating those ideas much more in fashion from the fashion business aspect. And Uh. students are really on board because, you know, you know, your generation are are thinking in, you know, they're thinking about, they've always, they've grown up thinking about climate change. They've grown up yeah. thinking about sustainability. They've grown up thinking about diversity and inclusivity. So we're speaking to an audience that are like a sponge, you know, so they I love it. You know, so hopefully was, they're going to be the future leaders. <laughs> I'm like, uh, Keenan, you think I'm a Gen Zer because I am a millennial. I'm actually an <laughs> elder millennial. So I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> So let's delve into your life, Keenan. I mean, <laughs> wow, you guys, you guys. I mean, Keenan is just, I mean, he he's in fashion, music. I mean, just a culture, like a cultural shapeshifter. Just amazing. So let's start from the beginning. Where are you from and right. where did you grow up? So I, I'm from a, a small town in the north of England that was primarily uh, a coal mining community. So. Wow. You know, like my, my, I was talking to my mom and dad a few weeks ago. They left school when they were 14, both of them. I mean, that was like, you know, you left school at 14, you went to work down a coal mine, or my mom worked in the factory that made the explosives for the coal mine. Amazing. Um, so they, so they both thought, you know, we don't want to do this for the rest of our lives. So my mom, uh, trying to be a hairdresser. Um, my dad was, you know, the, in, in the UK up until the fifties, you had to be in, the, you had to go into the army for a couple of years when you're 18 to 20 years old. So my dad came out of the army and both my mom and dad are very entrepreneurial. So they started small businesses, first of all, in the sort of hair industry, hence my, I love um, it. My, my love of, uh, <laughs> of hair dyeing. <laughs> I kind of grew, grew up in that world. Um, and, you know, so that's what I, that's where I learned uh, to have an entrepreneurial spirit and to, to kind of figure out how to get things done. Um, you know, and I'm quite restless. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, as you said, I've, I sort of have done a lot of things and, and, um, but primarily I've made a living doing fashion. I mean, that's what I've really, you know, music is a love of mine, but primarily yeah. I've made my living uh, in, in fashion and in design and producing clothes and so on. 
But I mean, ultimately, I I feel like it's all art. It's all expression, you know? So it's like different parts of you. It is. And it comes, I think, with any, you know, I try to um, to sort of relate this idea to students that, you know, if if your creative expression and and what you do in the world, if it comes from your heart, um, then I think other people receive that. You know, they... Um, they recognize that it's being done for quite pure reasons. Yeah. You know, and, and not everything has to be big, big scale. You know, you yeah. can you can be a designer who um, if you identify there are 10 other people in the world that are your customers and you make clothes and those 10 people buy those clothes every season or every delivery, you know, or, or, or they wear them every time you design something, then that's wow. 100% success, you know. So wow. if, you're, if you're H&M and you're making millions of garments and only 100 few hundred thousand but people are wearing them and a lot of the rest of it is going into landfill then it's a huge oh, failure yeah yes. so, and, and i'm not being down on h&m by the way it's, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no H&M, no absolutely but, not yeah. absolutely not it, we actually just had uh two representatives from fashion revolution on the show oh, to talk yeah. about you know some of the the impacts that fashion production can have but yeah. not necessarily pointing any direct fingers, but just figuring out ways as consumers that we can change our behaviors to help the planet. So it makes total sense. So, you know, it's the 1970s, you know, late 1970s. Okay. Punk band explosion. Uh, What inspired you to start sorted details? Wow, you've done a bit of research. I love it. I'm like, ah, oh, I was just like, oh my God, I could just imagine a little Keenan like picking up a guitar or a mic and just, how did that happen? What what was the process? It was kind of, you know, so I I kind of grew up as a, as a fan of, of, um, uh, of glam rock music when I was a little kid. And um, those, those artists always seemed like they were from another planet and the clothes that they wore seemed very unattainable I, it, later i found out that they were made by their friends family girlfriends husbands wow. so on um but they seemed very unattainable but when punk happened and it's kind of similar to you know other cultural movements that have sort of taken culture and taken it to very much a sort of street access you know that's happened throughout the history of popular culture um and punk sort of took uh creation and made it um accessible to everyone so if you're a writer you could you know make a fanzine and photocopy it and sell it at punk shows for you know 10 cents or whatever and communicate your ideas to the world which today you can do on social media much easier with a bigger audience Um, with punk you could take your flared trousers and cut the flare off the side and duct tape it together into a you know you, know, you didn't have to learn how to sew. Similarly, you could pick up a guitar as I did and play completely out of tune as I did and still do, um, <laughs> and sing completely out of tune as I did and still do. And and you could make a make a noise, um, you know. And and your you know friends peers would come to a show and see you because everybody was sort of part of the whole. There wasn't really a like a, a you know the people on stage and the people in the audience were the same people. I love that. I think you know it's and and it's happened you know, many times throughout popular culture. Yeah. Um, and today the great leveler is obviously, you know, the the uh, social media exchange yeah. where we exchange our ideas, thoughts, and, you know, sometimes uh, there are ideas, thoughts that maybe you don't want to hear or don't want to. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> staying in the creative realm, it gives, you know, it gives a platform for everybody to, 
to have a voice, you know, and like you with, with you, this amazing show, you know, you have great guests I and mean, Simon Doonan's charm. Oh, Simon. Ah, oh, so fun. So um, fun. And a fellow Brit and, you know, Lauren. <laughs> uh, yes, I love Lauren. Icons like Byron Lars, for example, you know, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you, know you, you have a lot of great guests and you can reach an amazing audience. And that's the great thing about the, you know, this digital revolution. That's, there's a lot of negative stuff, but the good stuff is this. Absolutely. You know, so that's, that's what punk was. It was a bit, it was a leveler. And it was actually, um, you know, that where I grew up, there were sort of two worlds, let's say. There was there was a big scene in the north of England called Northern Soul, which was oh, what? So yeah. So you, you should, if you get a chance, go and look online. I will. So like in, it, Northern Soul kids were obsessive about finding very obscure releases on local labels from around the US. So basically, you know, in the, in the 60s, there were a lot of a lot of local labels that tried to emulate Motown. Oh. And one of the big examples I would I would give you is um, a, the song Tainted Love, which was covered by Soft Cell, but that was originally a Northern Soul record. And 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 that music had a big swing in it. It was almost like Martha and the Vandellas, the swing of the record and the tambourines high in the mix. Yeah. Very strong vocal melody. And so all of these kids that were, you know, my peers, half of my school was into Northern Soul and they would turn up in an Adidas t-shirt, the most incredibly wide flared pants. Wow. Which when they were dancing, they would spin around and the flares would flare out like a Sufi whirling, you know, oh. Sufi master. Um, and it was a big scene, you know, it was a very big scene. And then the other side of the school were punk rock kids, but we were all the same. I mean, we were all, you know, yeah. we all grew up in the same community and, and you know, um, we, we were all kind of mates. But we, we there was almost like a line drawn in the playground of like the soul kids <laughs> from one side. And of course, a lot of the soul kids had been Bowie fans wow. and, and a lot of the... Um, uh, the sort of punk kids had also been Bowie fans. So we, we kind of all had that shared sort of glam rock experience. That is wild. So did, did you pick up the guitar? Like, did you teach yourself guitar or did yeah. you well, write I, songs? Yeah, we. so I started because my mum and dad thought I should learn to learn an instrument. And initially oh, wow. they, they said, okay, there's, this, there's a, a fellow in our village who teaches piano. You should go and learn piano from him. And he was, you know... Very, I'm going to be a bit ageist here. He was like an old, sort of old, fuddy-duddy guy, and he wanted me to learn to play classical piano, and I just couldn't get into it. So they then said, well, what about guitar? So um, they got me a, a classical guitar with nylon strings and, uh, you know, found a guitar teacher. Um, and I started learning how to play uh, classical guitar. But then um, a friend of mine said, well, you know, all you're into punk. All punk music is based around what's called a bar chord, which you put your index finger across the neck and then the other fingers form the chord. And you can play the same chord anywhere on the neck and it, it creates different chords. And I was like, whoa, I'm off to the races. I only need to learn one thing. Let's put my <laughs> in position. And I can play every punk record because so I painted the classical guitar black with like black paint. So awesome. And, uh, put a piece of string around it. And then, you know, I was I was sort of in business. And then I, I used to have a, a bicycle, um, which we in the States we call banana seat bike, you know, with the high handlebars. Oh, yeah. And like a chopper kind of thing. That's and, hilarious. And a friend of mine was very covetous of this bike. <laughs> and he had an electric guitar and an amplifier. So I said to him, okay, I'll swap the guitar for the, for the, for the bike. So we swapped. And, um, and then, uh, so I was 
then I was kind of in business. And then I, you know, got my friends around and we started rehearsing in the garage and writing songs and, you know, uh, playing terrible cover versions and annoying the neighbors. I love it. I love it so much. Um, yeah. How, how in the world did you end up at Central St. Martin's? Like, were you just like, hey, I think I want to, I think I want to do fashion. Like, what was, what was the transition like for you? Yeah, it, it wasn't. So I, I just loved the way musicians dressed. So yeah. it, it didn't matter. Like every, all musicians seem to come from somewhere else. Wow. Right. You know, so whether it was, um, I don't know, the, the musicians of the 60s had that kind of very psychedelic look. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen, there's a great documentary on TV now called The Summer of Soul. Oh, my goodness. Oh. So, I mean, you know, w- w- so we didn't, we didn't, in the UK, we didn't have access to those kinds of events, Woodstock, yeah. and so on. They weren't really, we had festivals in the UK, they were much smaller. Um, but it's amazing seeing a documentary like that today yeah. where, you know, everyone is dressed in this very kind of psychedelic um, you know, sort of, so whether it's Fifth Dimension or Stevie Wonder, all yeah. of the performers actually look, you know, they really have a distinct look from that era. And then you look at Woodstock and it's the same thing. that Everybody's kind of dressed the same. So fashion was kind of a very, it didn't matter what kind of music you were into or what kind of music you performed, but the, the sort of stylistic sense was very unifying uh, yeah. across, across culture and across the world. You know, it's kind of interesting. So when I was, uh, when I was a kid, I, was always really longing to wear the clothes that musicians wore. Um, but obviously, you know, you didn't have access to that as a kid and yeah. you sort of didn't have permission from the world to make stuff. You know, it was, wow. it was kind of, um, uh, you know, permission was almost denied because you had to learn, you know, had to become an expert in, in how to yeah. do it. Um, but I would uh, look at magazines and I would always see in magazines, you know, parties that were happening in London and the best dressed people, it always said studying fashion at St. Martin's. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go there because that sounds like they look like they're having a great time. That's the place. So that was really my impetus. It wasn't to study fashion per se. It was just to really be in that place. And, you know, in, in, in the, in the eighties and edu- education was free, you know, in England, it was free. What? Yeah. <laughs> everywhere today. Um, yeah. You know, if you could win a place, you could go. So I kind of made a portfolio and went to London and bought the Vogue on the train. Oh, wow. Before I got on the train, I bought Vogue and I went through it and I looked at every designer's name. And then in the interview, repeated all the designer's names completely. And my ache, I think it was like. I was, love it. I cannot. <laughs> but they, let, they let me in. So, you know, I must have, uh, you know, I must have done something right. So, um yeah, it, that was really the impetus was to go to that place. I didn't apply to any other colleges. It was either I go to St. Martin's or I'm not going to go anywhere, you know. And, I love it. Uh, you know, so I think, you know, you're very, as a kid, you're willful and, you, you know, you have arrogance and, and ego and so on. But it serves you in a good way uh, some of the yeah. time. You believe in yourself. You know, you have that self innate self-belief. I love that so much. And we're going to get to the arrogance in a second, because (laughs) while you were at Central St. Martin's, you had, there was a textile instructor who introduced you. Yes, Ashley. And then you kind of like get back into your music scene. Yeah. So, well, I, I, um, after, actually after punk, there was an era in in the UK called New Romantics, which were, Mm. 
you know, uh, what some people look at as a, as, as a part of a definition of the early 80s. I mean, there's so many different things going on at the same time. So much. But, you know, um, but today we kind of look back at in, in a lens and there's a certain electronic music and, you know, the sort of flock of seagulls hairstyle. And, you know, that, that's, that, that it's silly stuff that's easy to kind of pigeonhole that, that that's what was happening. Um, but it was much broader than that. But, you know, I, I had this like little electronic music group and we were going to clubs around the UK. And, and actually, I spoke of Soft Cell earlier. We used to go to a club in Manchester, uh, sorry, in Leeds called the, the Warehouse, where Mark Holman from, from Soft Cell was a DJ before they had their hits, you know. Wow. Um, so that was a kind of an embryonic stage. And that's what led me to go to St. Martin's. And so St. Martin's was really sort of an extension of that. And wow. my teacher, Natalie Gibson, who still teaches at St. Martin's to this day and is an amazing person, um, she's a real connector, you know. Yeah. So she would bring fantastic people into the college and introduce them to us, people like Paul Smith, the designer. And, you know, we, we, we kind of have this access to her amazing network. And one day she brought this woman came into the, the studio and I was sort of screen printing with my squeegee and my inks and things. And uh, Natalie said, oh, this person is a... A writer and she's doing a, a book about t-shirts and will you talk to her about screen printing so we got into conversation and the the woman has ne name's alice and she said to me my husband is a manager and i said oh really who does he manage and she said adam and the ants adam ants who was at that time was a massively famous you know Major. <laughs> um she, he also managed a uh a band called X-Ray Specs, who were one of the um, the sort of proponents of the early punk scene. And they, wow. their singer was this this girl who went by the name Polly Styrene. Um, but My producer, was, John, is going to go crazy. He's like obsessed, obsessed. He's going to so, die. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, Polly, Polly was amazing because, you know, she was mixed race. She had she she was a woman fronting, you know, wow. a really amazing punk band. They made one very iconic album. And, and this guy, Falcon Stewart, managed her, managed Adam, managed many other really great acts. So he said, or, or rather Alice said, come over to dinner and meet my husband and, you know, bring your demo and, you know, we can have a listen and all that. So what? went over for dinner. And at the dinner, there was another, there was a guy there who was a video producer. And um, at the end of the dinner, you know, we'd sort of had this polite conversation. Meanwhile, I have to explain, I had full makeup. Yeah, orange, I'm like, what are you wearing at this hair, dinner? <laughs> orange hair, like platform, high heel sneakers, the whole thing. Um, and uh, and so at the end of the dinner, they said, oh, you know, this this is Steve and he, he's going to show us the new video that he's made. And he put it on and it was uh, Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. And it was the first video that was ever made like digitally. Wow. And they turned they turned the Dire Straits guys into sort of digital animations. And so we and this is one of the most groundbreaking music videos I've ever made, right? Oh. So it finishes and talking about arrogance, it finishes and they took they all turned to me because I'm like the kid. <laughs> what do you think? And my response was, well, it, I'm I'm glad you can't see Mark Knopfler because he's really ugly. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it right now. Oh, my goodness. I love it, though. But it's I love it. You know, the universe soon put me in my place because obviously that was one of the biggest hits of the 80s. Yeah. And iconic music videos. So. But, you know, but still, I think it's it's good to sort of have, you know, a very strong sense of self and an opinion, regardless of who it is. Yeah. I you mean, know? essentially, like I, I tell fashion students 
that you know we're paid really to have an opinion because mm. you may design something in a particular color with a particular style a particular pattern who says that's right it's you yeah. that says that's what the world should be wearing and you have to have that courage of conviction to be able to do that it's very important so, absolutely um speaking of arrogance though <laughs> oh hey keenan would you like to meet freddie mercury no i'm good <laughs> like did you ever like did you regret that moment? Did you meet him later? Like, back drinks a few years down the road? Of course, like, of course. In, in retrospect, <laughs> what a mess, you know. But I mean, it's that that was that was fun because the this guy, the Falcon, the manager, got me into EMI records. Wow. Uh, they had a, a studio in the in the basement of their building, which was a very famous building. It's on the cover of two Beatles albums, the red wow. uh, red and blue albums, where the Beatles are kind of peering over the cover. And um, they this got me <laughs> they got me a producer who was the 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 guy who was the engineer on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Right, what? So they messing around. They got really good people. My wow. demos, my demo, my demos were rubbish, but. They're, they're, <laughs> We had all the right ingredients. And during the recording, of course, they said, you know, Freddie's in the next studio making demos for his solo record. Do you want to come and say hello? And I was like, nah, it's okay. You I'm know. good. I'm good. <laughs> like, you know, let's just get this right. You know. That is wild. Well, you you finish at Central St. Martin's and you eventually move to New York in 1993. Mm. You, estab- you establish your Soho studio and then you decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to start my own line around 1998. So like, what was life like in New York for you? Like moving from England to, to the city, especially at that time. And then also starting your own line, your own fashion line. What were some of the, you know, challenges and interesting experiences at that time for you? It was, um, I mean, it's a really good question. It, London and New York have similarities. Um, and today they're sort of, they're more similar, much more similar mm. than they were 30 years ago. Now we're coming up. Yeah. To um, but my attraction to New York was the the sort of 24 hour and actually to the, to America was the sort of can do spirit, you know, mm. where someone has an idea and they go forward with that idea and they turn it into a reality. Um, you know, the, the, I always used to say when I graduated from college, I was I had my own little collection in London. And, you know, I, I would ask a, a manufacturer a question or a retailer a question. And the answer was always no. <laughs> it, no. And then it became a negotiation to get to maybe, you know. Yeah. In the U.S., the difference for me was that the answer always appeared to be yes. And then we'll figure it out. You know, like, well, yeah, let's do it. And then we'll figure out how to do it. It wasn't coming from, and it's very, it was very British. I mean, it's probably not so much anymore, but it was a very British attitude to to sort of be, uh, no, that, that's more than my job's worth, mate. I can't do that. <laughs> no. um, so uh, that was my attraction to to America and certainly to New York and to the 24-hour life. You know, I came to I came to New York and didn't sleep for a year. You know, it's Oh, of, my goodness. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, a you know fantastic, um, and I came to New York illegally. I mean, I came here as a tourist and just stayed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Don't try that at home, folks. I um, love it. It was it was a, a sort of land of opportunity. You know, to, to me at least, it felt like that. And um, 
uh, and I had to get legal here. So I had to get a job and get a, a yeah. visa and all the rest of it. So that was sort of my first priority when I got here, that and going out to uh, nightclubs and bars. I mean, that's how you meet people. It that's is. How yeah. you meet I mean, people. There was no internet, you know, so you, that's networking is you have to get out there and, and, and talk to people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was, that was sort of my, my kind of introduction to, to New York. And then Part, part of getting legal, actually, was I, I incorporated a company and then that company sponsored me to be here. <laughs> Again, don't try that. Brilliant. Oh, my goodness. So, um, so that's what the, the fashion label grew out of. It, it kind of came out of that necessity wow. to, to, to work for myself, um, you know, because I have worked for other companies, obviously, but I really enjoy working for myself and, and sort of, you know, directing myself. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was really the reason for starting the company. So what was it called? Like, I think the IRS or the immigration oh. company to get me in. Yeah. I know. He's background. legal now. Yeah, Nothing legal you can now. do. You okay. Touch me. My taxes are paid and I have, I, I have a green card. So <laughs> I love it. So what was the fashion line called? So originally I, I incorporated in, in order, you know, I thought I have to have a company name that can't be my name because you can't sponsor yourself. So right. I called the company Slinky Vagabond, which is a lyric from a, from a Bowie song. Um, yeah. Bowie sort of uh, did a, an album called Young Americans, which he recorded in Philadelphia, which is very, uh, you know, very pivotal album for him. And, you know, working with amazingly Luther Vandross uh, and Ava Cherry, who were singing backup, you know, for Bowie. It's I mean, this wild. is before they were, they were both known in, in, on their own terms. Um, but the the one of the lyrics in the song Young Americans is Slinky Vagabond. And I just mm. like the way it sounded. And I'm a huge Bowie fan. So I kind of purloined that and, and used that as my incorporated name. And then that's what the brand was initially called. Um, amazing. Vagabond. And uh, yeah. You know, I have to ask you, you know, since we're since we're um, mentioning him, how in the world did you meet David and eventually get to like work with him and collaborate? He, 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 uh, David had a, uh, stylist, uh, photographer who worked with him called Jimmy King. who's an amazing guy, lovely guy, very, very talented. And, um, Jimmy, well, I had a showroom, uh, that I worked with that was on Broadway, uh, just off Soho. And Jimmy used to go to that showroom to pull pieces from various designers, um, for David and the band to wear for, you know, various events. And one of the events he did a show at uh, Roseland in New York. Oh, wow. And uh, um, uh, Imam was, was heavily pregnant at the time. It was literally oh, just goodness. before their daughter was born. So uh, David had uh, done the show and then he was doing a sort of meet and greet or press thing afterwards. And so he wore a shirt that I made, which was um, a sort of burgundy colored shirt with a uh, what they call the George Cross, which is the British yeah. uh, part of the British flag, part of the British Union flag, and um, and so that was kind of the first time that I saw him wearing something mine, but I didn't wow. at that point. And then uh, a few years later, um, I was doing a lot of sort of rock and roll clothes, like clothes for other other musicians, people like Sex Pistols and all sorts of people, and um, I approached his management company. And I was interested in doing clothes for, not for him, but merchandise for the tours. And unbeknownst to me, David, well, that was when he was starting to have health issues and he stepped back from touring. And so the, the management company said, you know, we love the idea, but it's not the right time. They didn't tell me why. 
Um, and then a few years later, I had, I'd launched my line at Target. And so at that point, I thought, right, I'm going to go back and talk to the uh, David's business management uh, organization and see if there's an interest with doing a, a sort of Bowie collection for Target Love because it was, it was very broad. It was in a lot of stores. And from a business standpoint, it would make sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, makes sense for David. And so that's how we initially met. We met at uh, on 57th Street at the management company offices. And um, that was in the fall of 2006. Six. Yeah, 2006. Um, wow. And it was very, you know, it's very interesting meeting. I mean, I kind of became, my creative juices were totally inspired by, initially by David Bowie, and then obviously by the, the the punk movement um because they as as creative people they seem so free yeah especially Bowie he could you know he could kind of like a you know change every record was a different record every look was a different look he didn't seem to be encumbered by a commercial direction like oh I've had a hit with this I'm just going to keep doing this yeah he kept changing and evolving and he was restless in that way and I think you know that's something that had a big influence on me um was to to sort of not not stand in one spot, but just to kind yeah. of keep moving forward. So it was a great opportunity to work with him. And we worked together over the over the course of 2007, um, up until the, the launch of the collection, which was launched in uh, October for, for holiday. And wow. we had his offices, which were downtown. He, his, his offices were opposite where he lived. Um, and he was kind of, you know, very um, generous throughout the whole process. I mean, he was, he's a, he was a very witty guy very, <laughs> you know very down, down to earth um uh there was david jones which is actually bowie's real name and then there was the david bowie character wow and, you, know, you realize that that was actually a character and then yeah. on top of that character there were other characters so it was kind of like an onion <laughs> wow so, uh, I, eventually i met the person that was like the core of the onion which was david jones and he would turn up to meetings dressed in you know, very, very not fashionable clothes. Though, so Wild. You kind of think like, Wild. hey, wow, you know, is he messing with me? <laughs> is it, it you? Just, yeah, it was just because he was, a, you know, he put on a, a mask and a costume when he was David Bowie. But when he wasn't David Bowie, he was David Jones, you know, and it was uh, it was the real guy, you know. That's awesome. That's and awesome that very, you were able to experience general. that. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's very, uh, very open. He said to me, I don't want to present, I don't want to be presented as the designer. You know, mm. I'm not the designer, you're the designer. I, I, I'm the inspiration for, you know, the, the, the collection. And that's w- absolutely what it was, you know. So um, it I was love it. a good, good working relationship, I think. I hope so. I mean, <laughs> I well, well, you were, you know, like when you launched your line, you over the years, you know, you really built up an amazing business. I mean, you're in Bergdorf's, you're in Bloomingdale's, all these major retailers, you know, you're doing collabs with, you know, Target. Um, What essentially was the key to your success? Because I think it's very hard sometimes for designers to scale, scale up. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It it was, it was necessity to be absolutely Hmm. honest. It was necessity. I mean, I, and luck, a lot of luck. I was, I'm, I'm I'm very I'm grateful I'm a very lucky person you know yeah. and and um uh that's um I mean there's a famous musician Brian Eno who's a producer of U2 and Coldplay and others and he always says that um I'm going to get the quote completely wrong but luck is preparation meeting opportunity yes that, that's so, right 
Um, I, I don't think that's his quote, actually, but he always says that. <laughs> that's, that's true. You know, so being putting yourself in the right place at the right time, but also having the know-how to then make something happen and, and, and having the skill to put that in place. And I think that's, that's very important. And, you know, I collaborated with people like Reebok, for example, I collaborated with Reebok for three years and that was wow. partly out of necessity, partly out of luck of, of, of meeting them. And then partly out of necessity because they were funding my runway shows. Yeah. Um, you know, they were, actually producing the sneakers in what for them would have been small quantities, you know, like 500 wow. pieces of a style. Um, and you couldn't do that in the real world. You know, you yeah. couldn't go out and get a small number of sneakers made. You have to get, you know, 5,000. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, that, that, my advice to, to young designers, emerging designers today is, is to be open to experimentation and collaboration. Um, you know, and to, I mean, at the time Reebok were a very damaged brand. They yeah. weren't cool at all. I mean, you know, today, you know, Pierre Moss is collaborating. Yeah. And, you know, Kirby's the creative director at Reebok. It's in a very aspirational brand. But in the early 2000s, it was way behind Nike. It was way behind um, way behind Adidas. It was even, you know, way behind Puma. I mean, yeah. It really wasn't, Agreed. You know, um, <laughs> so when I collaborated with them, it kind of wasn't a cool brand. And, wow. you know, a lot of designers might have said, oh, I don't want to, go near that because it's not it doesn't have the cool factor but i always think you know you can bring something to a brand like that it's very hard to be have an impact with nike because they're kind of number one or you know adidas and nike are kind of number one but with a brand that's that's damaged that needs help you can actually have an impact you know i uh, love that and did you teach yourself like the business or did you learn that at Central St. Martin's and sort of apply it like the business side of, of retail and, you know, the markups and the sell throughs and, you know, all of that craziness? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't learn. So, you know, we, we did. There was a bit of sort of uh, fashion business taught at St. Martin's. But, you know, as a kind of arrogant young designer, you kind of don't want to know. You're, you're sort of like, no, it's all about the, the design. That's all I'm yeah. interested in. So I kind of learned that side after I graduated. I was making I was making stuff literally on my kitchen table and taking it to retail stores, and then going home and wondering why they hadn't sent me a check six months later because I hadn't given them an invoice. You know, I didn't know what I didn't know to write an invoice. You know, um, so I learned that through experience. And then when I launched my business, initially I was completely on my own, and then my wife Nancy Garcia got involved initially to help me. Because wow. she could see that I, you know, I was I was drowning, you know, and um, she she's very very experienced in business and has run several businesses of her own handbag company, Dorothy company, and so on. So she got really involved, and I learned a lot from her. Um, I so love it. School of power hard, couple. Yeah, school, <laughs> school of hard knocks and school yeah. of you know learning from your better half. You know, so <sighs> it's kind of um, again finding a partner in in fashion many of the really successful designers have had a sort of left brain right brain relationship mm. um you know um uh everyone from Giorgio Armani to Valentino you, you know you look at their their sort of the, the other side of their business and there's always a someone with business acumen really driving it forward so true um, you know, and th th I mean Giorgio Armani is a great business person but w without his you know sadly departed yeah. former partner um would it have would it have been the business that it is today you know so it's really great if you can find someone who you trust yeah 
and not always working with you know your your partner or other half because sometimes you know it's difficult to work with someone that you're in a relationship with because when you go home there's sort of nothing else to yep, talk you about. have to turn it off it works sometimes and it doesn't and sometimes it doesn't work you know but i think it's very important to have that um for, for I love it. yeah for, for an emerging designer it's good to have someone to bounce those ideas off as well and all of these um you know, you've worked with several uh, brands like Lamb, which I love. Did you, did you work with Gwen? Yes, yeah, yeah. We I worked <laughs> briefly with Lamb. We went to. Um, uh, she had. A, I don't think she has the same house now, but she had a house in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah, and we went. We went to work with her there, literally around her kitchen table. I love with, it. With fabric swatches and sketches and so on. It was on. such a great brand, yeah, and I can totally yeah. see how you know your influence. Well, I think we both, so both Gwen and I have the, the same, one of the same core influences, which is Vivian Westwood. We're both Vivian Westwood fanatics. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I think it was, it's very easy to, to you know, have a, a working relationship with someone if they, if they, their inspiration is your inspiration, you know. So Vivian coming from obviously the punk movement, but then she evolved her business to being a sort of irreverent, you know, kind of British um, uh, icon, you know, and I, I think that was that was kind of why there was a, a, a you know a simpatico relationship with working with Gwen. But I I worked with her very briefly, and you know it was sort of sad that her brand really went away um, because, like all small brands, you know, you develop a business, maybe you sell to you get into a department store like Bloomingdale's, yeah. but you know they they don't really take a big risk on young talent, so they'll buy for maybe six or eight stores in a few metropolitan locations. Yeah. But to get it to go beyond that is really hard. And that's why when I had the opportunity to work with Target, I saw a way to, to go mainstream, actually. And, mm. and, and, and David Bowie said that to me. He said, you know, it, you can be a cult artist, but at some point you've got to get into the mainstream. You can wow. then go back to being a cult artist because as long as you don't turn off your core audience, you will have kind of had a, you will have touched popular culture. You know, and I, that was kind of an interesting, and he did that with his, he did, did an album called Let's Dance in the early 80s that was massively successful. Niall wow. Rogers produced it. It was very much, you know, a kind of a, a, an R&B infused record, and it was a big hit in America and around the world. And then consequently, he kind of went back to almost being like an underground artist, but, wow. you know, Bowie, but an underground. That's amazing. I love it. This is so, a great advice for life. Yeah, so, you know, for, for a designer, it, it's kind of, it, it's key to know who you are, who your audience is, and also what your audience wants from you. Um, you know, and I think that I, I, I stumbled upon that a few times. I stumbled upon it with, with sneakers, you know, because I worked with, with Reebok and then Gola, and then I did a collaboration with, uh, with, um, Dr. Martin as well. So the sort of footwear side of it, I'm not trained in footwear, but yeah. I recognize that the audience that I speak to and they wanted footwear from me, you know, and we, we had a very big business for the, for the sneaker side of our company in Japan. It was like, you know, wow. and um, even today I was in Beijing a couple of years ago and this young, young uh, sneaker freak came to a, an, an event that I was, I was uh, hosting and he brought all of these highly collectible Insta Pump uh, Furies that I did, which now you, you see them on eBay for a lot of money. And he had the full full set, and he knew the whole. He knew stuff about them even that I didn't know or had forgotten, you know. So it, you can tap into 
a um, a sort of seam of people that are fanatics about a certain thing, sometimes accidentally, you know, mm. as I did. And 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 in that world, you become known for that, you know. So it's I love uh, it so much. Not, not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I got to get into it. Um, what inspired you to write your Rizzoli book, which I love rebel, rebel, anti-style, like what, were you just like, Hey, you know what? I want to just, you know, give sort of like a history lesson on the amazing culture and music and all of these things that you've witnessed throughout your life. Like what inspired you to do it? Well, it was, so, um, there's a, a great, um, kind of cultural documentarian in the UK, a guy called Paul Gorman, who's written a number of books uh, about um, sort of fashion and music related topics, graphic design and, and, and other topics too. And he had a book called The Look, which was hmm. um, subtitled Adventures in Pop Rock Fashion. Oh, wow. And that was published, I think, in 2000. And he was working on a, uh, a second edition. And so he contacted me and he said, can I interview you for the second edition? And because um, he was, he, started, he wanted to include some New York-based designers. Mm. And I said, yeah, sure. And we kind of hit it off. And so after, after that book was published, he said to me, look, I think, you know, you should tell your story. Wow. And uh, he said, if you're interested, I would love to collaborate with you on a book. Um, and that essentially became Rebel Rebel Anti-Style, became the book Rebel Rebel, Rebel Anti-Style. It wasn't called that originally. It was had a token <laughs> name. The publisher wanted to call it that because they wanted to play on the Bowie Association. And, you know, ah. so again, the, the, the lesson in it was with, with like everything you have to, um, you know, you, you, you collaborate obviously with others and the sort of flow of ideas goes in a certain way. And you kind of have to go with it you, you, um, because the outcome will be better, right? Mm. So the outcome, we, we had a publisher in the UK, we had Rizzoli in the US, and Rizzoli's partner in the US for this publication was Urban Outfitters. Oh, wow. So, Perfect. Uh, they, they Obviously, it went into Target, it went into a lot of other retailers too. But they said to me, you know, with our research, we, we recognized that, you know, that we would like the title to be Rebel Rebel. And so that's, that began to like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the idea with the book was to have 10 different items in fashion or, or in clothing that have been worn throughout the history of, of, you know, popular culture in the late 20th century and that keep coming back, you know. So, yes. you know, you see, I mean, obviously Marlon Brando wore the black leather jacket in the wild one. And then, you know, today you might see Pharrell or, I don't know, the singer from Duran Duran wearing a brightly colored you know, neon colored motorbike jacket, but it's the same message. It's saying the same thing to the world. It's saying I'm a rebel outsider. Um, but, you know, if, if Pharrell's wearing it and it's neon pink, there's a slightly different expression today. It's, he's not doing the same thing that Marlon Brando did 70 years ago or whatever. Yeah, He's speaking to today's audience, you know, in, in, in a way that today's audience will relate to it. They still know he's sort of outside of the mainstream, you know, even though he's a massively successful artist yeah. and very influential on culture, but he's sort of choosing to wear neon pink because it's <laughs> not, you know, a black jacket today would be kind of conformist. You know, neon pink is like, okay, yes, this is like, I'm claiming this for, for the culture today. So yeah, I think, th and that was the impetus behind the book. It was like, let's look at the t-shirt and how it's evolved throughout the history of, of fashion and music. And let's look at the prom dress and let's look at the jean and so on. Um, Wild. You know, as I was looking through the book and just, you know, looking at some of your 
previous interviews, it just made me think about just how in fashion, all of these cycles, like we just keep recycling sort of the same decades over and over again. And there must've been something unique about the decades that we continue to repeat and what sort of, what can we do or how can we be more rebellious or anti-fashion to maybe create a new, a new decade that's completely different and sort of get out of this cycle. Is there something that you share with your students or, or a personal belief um, that could sort of help us move past this, this consistent repetition? It's, it's a very, very good question. And it's an existential question. Um, so I think today, rather than, um, rather than purely being about style, it is about style, but I think it's about the bigger questions in society. Hmm. And, and, you know, I touched on those at the beginning of our conversation. So, um, you know, social justice, sustainability, climate change, these, these really big issues that if we don't tackle them, they are, you know, they're devastating on society itself. So we're doing harm to ourselves by, by not addressing these issues. And I think that's the challenge for fashion today is to truly get to grips and, and you, we're seeing it in many different ways yeah. through, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a young emergent um, um, accessory company in Brooklyn called Asia, who are making really, you know, the, the two young women that are the founders of that company are making sort of, uh, they're, they're telling a story of travel, they're going to different regions in the world, and they're producing goods from those regions, they're doing it in a luxurious way, they're doing it in an equitable way, because they're kind of sharing, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the the profit, so to speak, with, yeah. with the people that are manufacturing the goods, and they're sharing their story with the world. You know, they're, so that they're an example that I would give. Another is um, as, a, as a great accessory company, uh, also in Brooklyn, called Bond Hardware. That are going to. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I love them. I want that little hammer um, yeah. ring. I'm like obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I'm I, I I again. I think you know they have a very singular vision. Um, they are, they are of the community that they're speaking to, you know, so whether it's, you you know, you mentioned earlier millennial or Gen Z or whatever, (laughs) it's, I don't, I don't really think about it in terms of communities, not about, about, you know, age, race, whatever they're, I mean, they are, but they're about, um, your view of the world. So your like-mindedness. And I think that's in fashion, you tend to, to connect with that like-minded community and it can be big or small. You know, um, and I think those kinds of brands uh, are the ones that today are making an impact because they aren't recycling ideas. You know, they aren't taking ideas from other decades. They're actually doing something that is new. Um, You know, I mean, I I think, you know, Ashley and Moya from Asho would say, you know, the influence of their cross-shoulder bag or the bum bag or whatever. You know, you look back at um, contemporary culture. I mean, go back to like, you know, late 70s, early 80s hip hop or whatever. And you see that kind of, that that accessory, that's when it kind of came to cultural relevance was through that subcultural expression. But they're not recycling it. They're they're taking something and making something completely new and fresh. 2021 with it, you know, very contemporary. So I, I think that it is happening. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's like with with music. I mean, you listen to any, any look at any TV show today. Um, I mean, we've been binge watching uh, Never Have I Ever. I don't know if you've seen that show. 
I um, have not yet. Right. Adding it to um, my list. It's great. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> Mindy Kaling is the executive producer, and I think she wrote quite a lot of it. Um, it's a great series, and the char- characterization is fantastic. The storytelling is great, but the music. You know, I, ca- I keep hearing these relatively new artists throughout the show and I get on you know social media and look them up and listen to their music properly and it's all very kind of 80s inspired let's say it's not 80s per se right but there's a one one band called Cannons who have a song um uh um the, the title fire is in the title fire for you is the title um and it's kind of like an 80s sort of gentle funk track you know, with a very dream pop vocal over it. I love it. it. So it definitely has an influence from that era, but it's of 2021, you know, it's it's very definitely today. I think it's easy to reference other eras, you know, um, and I think we've been through a, a big period of sort of sample culture, right? Oh. Not just from sampling music, but sampling in fashion. Yeah. You know, sort of saying, oh, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of that and a little bit of that and put it together. And and you can do that and make a new thing that's the third thing, um, but you can also just steal and appropriate. <laughs> I know. Oh, Fashion's done a lot of that. In that sort of, you know, I mean, it's like we're going to take that body and take that yeah. color and make it happen. <laughs> yeah, but, but again, and I think you know today. I mean, we're we're in a very sensitive time in culture, yeah. and appropriation, you know, is is obviously um, something that fashion has to address. Oh yeah. But, you know, when I look at, for example, Vivian Westwood, Vivian and Malcolm McLaren did a collection in the early, uh, like 1983, I think it was called Witches. They collaborated with Keith Herring. And they oh, did yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, um, yes, Simon, Simon uh, talked about that. Yeah, so, and, you know, Malcolm came to New York and he saw kids wearing uh, white sneakers with the laces undone, you know, very, and he went up, he went up to, he met, Afri- he, he was walking in the street and he saw this guy coming towards him wearing a Sex Pistols t-shirt and wow. he stopped the guy and he said, I used to manage that band. And the guy said, this was a band. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the guy was Africa Bambata, right? I mean, wow. One of, yeah. One of the architects of hip hop. And he said to Malcolm, come up to the Bronx tonight. I'm, I know this because Malcolm, Malcolm's told this story many times when he was living, he told the story, but I interviewed him once and he told it to me again ad nausea. Um, but he went up <laughs> to the Bronx and he saw for the first time kids with like three turntables plugged into a streetlight having a party in the street. And it was totally like, you know, talk about playing a guitar out of tune, like not being able to play an instrument. This was like, get rid of the instruments. Let's just have the turntables. So there was beats on one, you know, maybe a loop of a vocal on another and wow. maybe a hook from another record on another. And that's kind of, you know, if you listen to Grandmaster Flash, Wheels of Steel, I mean, uh, you know, talk about uh, the blueprint for contemporary music. I mean, it's right. It's yeah. all there on that record. Wow. Um, so we have had a history of which became sampling. You know, it became somebody created the Akai sampler and then suddenly you could do all this perfectly, you know, alter the tempo and time and everything. Um, and we started doing that in fashion from the wow. beginning of fashion. I mean, you know, East Saint Laurent was doing collections that were influenced by different regions in the world because he would travel there and so on. Um, and, you know, he wouldn't necessarily give credit to a community that he was sort of taking these ideas from. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think that was very much, I'm not excusing it, but that was very much a different time. And that was how fashion worked. And it's worked like that really up until the beginning of this decade. I think really wow. people started to say, you know, we should be actually not just going to the Ndebele tribe in Africa and taking their textiles, but we yeah. should 
acknowledging that and and giving something back to that community if we're going to take from it you know so i think that's why today fashion really needs to fashion needs to start recycling in terms of the actual product but stop yeah. recycling, recycling in terms of the ideas I right. love that. I love that. And you are a member of the CFDA. When did you join the CFDA and what, uh, how, how are you currently uh, working uh, in well, that organization? So, yeah. So I, I joined in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a famous quote from Groucho Marx that is, I wouldn't want to be a club of, uh, I wouldn't want to be a member of the club. <laughs> It would have me as a member. I love it. But I'm I'm part of the CFDA Education Committee, so which is how I know Ash, Ashley and Moya from from Asher, and it's how I know the Bond Hardware team um, because they've been part of the a scholarship program that's that's uh, part of the CFDA, which are doing software. great work, you guys. Great doing work. Finals. Yeah, and that's that's kind of you know that's the thing I do really like about. CFDA, my involvement in CFDA, that's what I really like. Um, uh, you know, I think it's, it's it, Sarah Kozlowski, who's the head of the CFDA Education Initiative, is doing really great work there. And, and she has been for the last seven or eight years, maybe longer, actually. Um, but, you know, helping uh, to educate emerging talent and helping emerging talent to get a foothold financially you know i mean it's not oh. the, the, the awards are not that big so they're not really going to make or break a business but they the mentorship that's offered along with the financial reward is you know really beneficial because it's about mentorship it's about network it's about a community it's about a support system you know and i think that's that's the really good thing about cfda um you know and it's uh it's an organization that has been a bit of a you know, uh, a, a sort of velvet rope mentality, actually, to be very frank, yeah. Um, yeah. for years. Um, I mean, I was, I was amazed to be admitted into it, you know. <laughs> um, I know it's, it's tough. It's tough, yeah. you know, getting it, into the it, 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 It's starting to, you know, Diane von Festenberg did great work there. Yeah. Um, she opened it up and she actually said to young talent, come and join. Whereas wow. before that, it was a little bit like, you know, it was Ralph, it was Donna, it was Calvin, yeah. you know, that, that elite, um, you know, and, and now I think it's opening up to a greater degree. Um, Absolutely. Really, really benefiting younger emerging talent too. I'm so excited about it. Yeah. Um, you have been very um, active in fashion education. Mm. Um, currently, you're like, hmm. <laughs> I mean, you're the founding director of the Masters in Fashion Management Program at Parsons, and you also uh, founded the Master in Fashion Business Program for New York University, and along with several other other, uh, projects. What is the significance of fashion education, and is it something that either fashion professionals or designers uh, should pursue or consider um, when sort of, you know, figuring out their careers. I know that my parents were just, you know, I wanted to go to fashion school and they were like, are you nuts? Like business, business only, which I'm glad, you know, they did. Um, And I wound up studying international business um, with a concentration in marketing. And I was like, okay, that's great. Now I'm ready to go work in fashion but they didn't really understand sure. the value of, of a fashion education. Like what, what would you say to folks like that? Well, I think that, 
So a, a, a career in fashion was most traditionally thought of as a design career, although, you know, the, there's fashion marketing, there's fashion communications and writing and so on. But I, I think primarily it, it was the sort of go-to for someone who uh, wanted to pursue a creative, in, in, in quotes, yeah. uh, um, without realizing that business is also very creative. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Thank it's, you. Creativity <laughs> is, uh, it is in all aspects of life, you know, so it's not just limited to design. But I think from my own experience, having studied at, at St. Martin's and, and come out of it, you know, like every other kid in my year thinking you're going to be the next great fashion designer because that's the that's the that's the training at St Martin's and it should be that's what they do you know um but i think there's there's only room for a few of those people in the world unfortunately mm -hmm. in the, in, the, in the us there are 23,000 graduates of design programs fashion design programs coming out of school every year so wow. there are 23,000 jobs every year so the reality is it's a very challenging career to break into um, and my, from my own perspective, I always thought that designers really did need to understand. They need the left brain, right brain aspect. They need to understand the 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 way business works. Even if they're not going to um, be the product development manager in their company, if they're not going to be the marketing executive in their company, initially, if they're starting their own business, they're going to be all of those things because they, they yeah. won't be able to afford to hire anybody else, right? So, you know, they should know something about that. Otherwise, they're going to have to learn by making mistakes and mistakes are expensive. Yes. You're spending your own money. It's, you know, every mistake you make is your own, you know, your own loss. Um, so I think it's very important to have that. And as a, I'm a designer, I'm not a business person per se. So I wanted to create a course that had had a very strong touch on the aesthetic side of fashion, mm. but that also was very um, motivated in changing the way the business of fashion works. So um, to create the, the next wave of entrepreneurs that are maybe more conscious in the way that they're designing, creating, uh, manufacturing, and so on. And also the next wave of leaders and, and C-suite uh, that are also yeah. looking at how can we you know, change the industry? Um, you know, and my friend Claudia Cividino, who's the CEO of Laura Piana here in North America, you know, she was she was sort of part of that initial panel discussion that we had at Parsons wow. um, when we were launching the program. And, you know, we were looking at CEOs, for example, in, in all of the major fashion companies, mostly they're men, mostly they're white men, and mostly the board is white men. Right. So yeah. actually, when you make a really stupid marketing error, error that, you know, Gucci have done a couple of times in recent years yeah. um, and, and that may have been a genuine just done. Right. Mistake, but did you, it wouldn't have been a mistake if you had people in the room that said, wait a minute, do you realize that that looks like, you know, so yeah. that's why I think the, the course at Parsons is very important because. It, it's it's important to empower those future leaders, and and I have to say, primarily the course uh, is women. It's mostly women that wow. are starting the course. So there's obviously an appetite for you know female business leaders to really be change agents. I love that, and to be those you know future and hopefully not so far in the future leaders in the industry, and to to really um, be the voice of change. You know, so I think. Yeah. It's, it's necessary and needed, um, you know, and it's grown tremendously since launching the program's grown tremendously in terms of the, the volume of students that are coming in. Wow. So there's an appetite for it in the world, um, you know, and hopefully we can be a springboard.
for that you know and and um and and, and be the the sort of the the catalyst you know for change i uh, love that i, I love that parsons has a strong brand so yes. when, you, when you have parsons on your resume you know people are going to listen you know so a company's going to listen if they're looking to hire someone they're going to listen um and um you know so hopefully we're, we're doing something good with the program and uh, hopefully it continues to grow um in in, in the appropriate way you know so um it grows to match the opportunities that are out there in absolutely the absolutely you mentioned expensive mistakes i just have to ask what was your most expensive mistake uh, as a fashion designer? <laughs> I've, I've made two numerous. <laughs> I will, so I, what I will do, I will go back to, I will go back to the one-on-one mistake. Right, the first mistake, um, which could have been calamitous, was that I I called my company Slinky Vagabond. <laughs> I, I I thought that's such a wacky name. No one else is going to have no that. No one. Um, and and I didn't I didn't trademark it. I didn't actually start tra- to trademark the trademark process. So I'd been in business for a couple of years. I was selling to Barney's. I was selling to actually I wasn't in Barney's at that stage. I was on the cusp of selling to Barney's, but I was in really great retailers in the US, in Japan, and in Europe. Wow! And uh, I got a cease and desist letter from a footwear company in uh, Sweden called Vagabond. And they oh. said, you're, you're infringing on our trademark and you must stop. And so I said, well, you guys make shoes. And I wasn't, this was before Reebok, so I wasn't making shoes. Yeah. I said, you guys make shoes, I make clothes. I don't see where the infringement is. And they said, no, we, we make clothes too. And they sent, sent me a picture of a guy, obviously at a trade show with a T-shirt that said Vagabond. And so they were protecting their IP of because course. in the future they may want to make clothes, right? So I got a lawyer in the in Europe because I had to, you know, fight the case in Europe. And it went on for probably about a year. And after wow. a year, very expensive lawyer's fees, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to change the brand into my name because no one else literally, um, I mean, this was kind of before Keenan Thompson was famous. So people would, I'd say to people, my name's Keenan, and they say, what, Tina? I say, no, <laughs> Keenan. Oh, okay. It's easy now because Keenan Thompson's so famous, everybody knows the name. And there are, a, you know, there are a few sports people called Keenan as well. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know anything about sports, so excuse my dumbness. On no the- worries. Same here. Well. Um, but that that could have been a really expensive mistake because wow. what I had to do was to go to all my stores and say, look, we're changing the name of the brand. You know, you've already been selling it for two years and you've got some customer loyalty and we're going to change the name of the brand. But they were loyal to us. And actually Barney's then said, well, now we're interested in selling your line because they previously didn't want what oh. they names. They wanted designer names, which now it doesn't yeah. matter. I mean, it doesn't matter today, but then they wanted brand names and my collection was made in Europe. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> stupid snobbery that used to exist. <laughs> completely thankfully now has gone away to a degree so so yeah that oh would, that would have, so my you know kids if you're at home listening if you if you uh decide on a name for your brand trademark it immediately 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 now this is a bit of a broad question but i mean you're so interesting i'm like what what inspires your creativity like where do you get your your creative inspiration from I mean, I know you just mentioned you were watching the Netflix series and you were like, oh, I hear something and sort of piqued your, your interests. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, like where, where do you get yours from? Um, it comes from sort of listening to my inner voice, 
to a degree. Mm. And, um, and my wife always tells, reminds me of this story. Uh, she says, one time when I was starting out, I was uh, about to start designing a new collection. And I said to her, you know, I don't have, uh, I kind of can't find the inspiration. And she said to me, well, go up on the roof and just like kind of meditate for a while and think about it. And I did. I went up on the roof and then I came down and I said, sword fencing. Wow. Um, go to a sword fencing school, which there was one in, you know, midtown Manhattan. Look at the clothes, look at the way, because they fasten up in a certain way. Yeah. They have, um, you know, uh, protective panels in certain places. And so, and, and the, 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 uh, the, 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 sort of gauze nets yeah. that they wear is very interesting. You know, the way they, the pose that they make. So cool. <laughs> and, and so that became an influence for a collection. And it was from listening to your, your inner voice, you know. Um, I mean, uh, you know, you can get inspiration from many sources. Obviously, I do find traveling to be in a very big inspiration mm. because my mind is free to to, to travel also when I'm yeah. when I'm in a different space, you know, um, it may not be uh, from going to a location and seeing something in that location that I verbatim think, okay, I'm going to do something that's that color or that's that concept. It's just from having the freedom in in one's mind, um, and I do that. You know, I, I often have my best ideas. I go out walking a lot. I often uh, go out and have a walk, and I find changing the environment uh, stimulates something inside to sort of think a little bit differently. Um, yeah. and, and, and that's, I think, from a general perspective, you know, um, I think most people can benefit from that by allowing that inner voice to be free and to sort of tell you what it's thinking. Keenan, I love it because you have mentioned freedom so much during this conversation. And that's something I, I personally um, love as well and something that I'm always striving for, not only physically, but mentally, just yes, being yeah. mentally free. Yeah. Um, how do you maintain your your unique rebellious spirit. Um, there's always, you know, we're being bombarded with messages constantly, like on yeah. TV, social media, even in the industry, like whether, whether it's at, you know, Parsons or, you know, fashion, CFDA, whatever, we're constantly being bombarded by, by messages of who we should be or how we should, you know, conduct ourselves or the way we should think. How do you maintain your your balance and your and and tapping into that voice that you mentioned like always sort of residing there and not allowing things to it's a very very good question. It's a very good question <laughs> i think so i honestly feel like an outsider and i think a lot of people feel that way in the world i yeah. think shared feeling from you know m much of society we actually don't necessarily feel that we kind of belong let's hmm. say I mean, yeah and it probably comes from like I grew up in a town where my accent today is totally different from my accent when I was a little kid I moved to London and I was sort of teased a lot from having a, a kind of provincial accent yeah and it, I moved to London. At, I was 18. So my accent kind of shifted into a London accent, but my mum and dad have a very strong Yorkshire accent. I mean, I've, I always spoke clearly, but I definitely had, you know, um, 
uh, a, a sort of provincial twang to the way I spoke. And, you know, in London, it was kind of the big city and everybody spoke in a very, you know, sort of southern clipped way. Um, so I, I definitely felt like an outsider there. But I also felt like an outsider when I was a little kid growing up, you know, in school. I, I kind of didn't. And, and again, I think a lot of people feel like this. You know, you, you may have a big group of friends and you may be, you know, maybe a popular person, let's say. But you you have that sort of feeling that you, you you maybe either don't belong or shouldn't belong, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I think that is um, that outsider them has always played a big part in my makeup of, of as, as a human, you know. And I actually don't see it as a bad thing. Uh, no. I, I used to feel like it used to bother me a little bit, you know, because I it's always like the velvet ropes there and the other side all the people I'm I'm standing here waiting yeah and and you know you you know you have to be honest I I still feel like that I go to CFDA meetings and you know Tom Ford speaking as a new I kind of feel like you know I don't don't really you know I'm not really part of this and I'm sure 95% of the other people that are sitting there um so, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I, I embrace that actually. And that's where my kind of, I'm not really rebellious. I mean, you probably, we've spoken for a little time now and you probably can tell I, I, I'm, I'm probably not as I seem if you don't know me, yeah. you, know, you know, I mean, you know, I just went and got my hair dyed yesterday. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he always has great hair, people. I'm too old, I'm too old for hair dye, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. But it's you know just part of that. Um, uh, that I think you need to. I think you have to have something to be against. Actually, you know, uh-huh. to be a creative person. You have to stand for something. You have to be against certain things. You have to. Um, you know, go counter to what's happening. The way to stand out as a designer is do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if everybody's doing streetwear and like the whole world right now, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's a massive movement that you could trace back to Grandmaster Flash, obviously. Um, but, you know, the, when you see sneakers in Laura Piana, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, whoa, okay, that's a major influence that, and it's shocking. Took, yeah. It's, I'm like, what? 40, 50 years for that to happen, <laughs> but it's a major influence. But you've sort of got to push back against it, you wow. know. Um, and I think as an emerging designer, that's how you stand out is by doing something that's sort of bucking the system and 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 and, and standing against the mainstream. Um, yeah. You know, because if if Tom Ford's doing sneakers, uh, or if H and M is doing sneakers, it's hard to compete in both of those realms, whether it's mass or whether it's, you know, luxury and, and exclusive. And you come along and say, Hey, what about my sneakers? It's hard to, to have that noise, you know, to, yeah. to break through that noise. But if you're doing something fabulous, that's the opposite of sneakers, then maybe people will go, wow. Okay. Here's something. Wait, what's going on over here? <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. That, that, that really resonated with me. Uh, just because I feel like none of us are really meant to be mainstream. Like we're all different. And so now because sort of the norm is to, you know, sort of, you know, community is great, but we don't all have to be the same. (laughs) So when you dare to be different, you are being rebellious because you're daring to be yourself, you know? So if you have an opportunity to do that, it's, it's always good. And you, you know, you, you were mentioning your experience of, wanting to, you know, maybe study fashion and you're, oh, fashion, yeah. you know, what are you doing? The, so that 
in, 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 I'm not saying in your case because I don't know, but you know, in many cases, parents would look at fashion as a very insecure career. Oh, absolutely, and, and, and they're they're very religious as well, so they were like, "Oh Lord." <laughs> so you know, there's 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 two reasons there why you know they may be, and and this is a, an experience that a lot of the kids have. I mean, I actually didn't have that. My parents were very supportive. They didn't necessarily you know, kind of understand St. Martin's and all that kind of thing. It didn't, I mean, they did once I got there, but before attending, they didn't necessarily get it, but they let me go with it. But I think a lot of parents are, they want to support, they want their kids to be happy. Of course. So, you know, there's a, there's a societal norm, let's say, and they want their kid to be able to um, flourish in that societal norm. That's just the natural thing with parents. So, you know, I yeah. teach parents all the time and, you know, you have to reassure <laughs> that, you know, the, the, the success is being happy in yourself. And I, you know, you can have all the money in the world. You could be incredibly unhappy. Yeah. You can have nothing and be incredibly fulfilled because you're, you're actually doing what that little voice inside of you is telling you you should be doing in life. You know, yeah. and it's very hard. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm saying this. I mean, Oh, I it's so hard. <laughs> so practice. hard. <laughs> no, I definitely don't practice what I preach, but that is, I think, a universal truth that if you can yeah. follow that, then you'll find the peace within yourself. And, and fashion is the antithesis of that, actually, because it's always telling you that whatever you have now, you shouldn't be buying that thing. Because- right. <laughs> but now we're like sustainability. Let's 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 focus here. But we'll see how that goes. <laughs> But, you know, I, I have to ask, are you still in a band? Are you still? Yeah, we have a new record out. Yeah, we just, <gasps> um, so we actually, um, so as uh, I couldn't use the name Slinky Vagabond for fashion, but I've used it a couple of times for music. I had a band with um, uh, David Bowes, guitar player, Earl Slick, and one of the Sex Pistols guys. And one of the You're so cool, Keenan. I can't with you. You're too cool so, for me. So we, we did that. That was called Slinky Vagabond. And then we have a new record with a friend of mine in, who is based in Florence, Italy. And he has a studio there and wow. I was working there a lot for a couple of years in 2017, 2018. So we struck up a friendship, started writing together and we just, the record just came out in May and um, we're getting a lot of nice notices here in the US, getting some nice yeah. press. And uh, oh, we, what is it called, Keenan? So, so What's the, record, the new band name? We so need so the, the info. Well, the band name is Slinky Vagabond and the album is called King Boy Vandals. I love it. It's an anagram of Slinky Vagabond. (laughs) um, uh, We we, we kind of roped a bunch of friends into it to play on it. Um, Some people that, you know, rock and roll people would know. uh, A friend of mine who's in, well, the one that you probably probably would know of is uh, the band Guns N' Roses. So a friend of mine plays, he's on tour actually at the moment in Guns N' Roses. So he's playing guitar on a couple of tracks and then got various musicians that have you know, played with Bowie and with uh, other bands in the 80s that, you know, I was acquainted with and friends with. So so yeah. what was the inspiration by the album? Like, what can we expect? Well, it's very, it's it's quite nostalgic, actually. It, it's um, uh, it's 10 songs um, that uh, many of them have a lyric that isn't about what you think it's about. For example, we, we our first single was called The Beauty in You. But, but, and so it's a ballad and, uh, but the lyric is actually about all of those kind of abandoned towns around the world. So, you know, um, I mean, it sounds a bit doom and gloom, but, you know, Chernobyl, the the nuclear, 
meltdown. So there's a town close to that that's completely abandoned and nature's taken it over again. So it's all overgrown and there are foxes and wild animals that are, you know, running around in that town because no one lives there anymore. Yeah. Places like this all over the world that have been abandoned. So the, 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 the lyric is, I see the beauty in you. I see the chaos too. And I love it. Oh my people, goodness. A lot of people might think it's a love song, but, and it kind of is, but it's a love song to, um, you know, uh, th- th- those abandoned t- ghost towns. That's wild. And that is wild. My, a lot of my lyrical content is like that. Like some of it is very, very, um, what it is, um, you know, but some of it is, uh, kind of takes a bit of poetic license. So the song isn't necessarily, about what, what you think the subject matter would be. So. Those are my favorites. Um, I literally just like maybe a day ago found out what Blackbird, like what that song meant. Right, right, right. I had no idea by the Beatles. Oh, I was like, what? McCartney, McCartney is the uh, the expert at, at those uh, sort of hidden lyrical references. And- I had no idea. You know, so we're all like, yeah. And it's like, actually... <laughs> It's wild, wild. Well, this is a fashion moment, Keenan. So I, I mean, I could literally talk to you all day because I just want to hear every detail about your life. Um, but what is your favorite fashion moment of all time? One of them, it could be something personal, professional, something that you've witnessed, you know, like it could be something like from childhood, something that was just so magical. And I'm sure you have several, but if there's one that you could share with us that really stands out. I think, um, so the, the, the tutor, the teacher that I was talking to you about at St. Martin's, Natalie Gibson, we used to have, as part of St. Martin's, we had this one free trip where you, we went to uh, another city or location and the whole of our class went and our class was small. It was like 12 students. So Natalie took us to Italy. And uh, we went to a textile uh, exhibit at Lake Como, um, which is pretty Cute. fancy. Yes. Yeah. And um, so at this event, I met Claude Montana. Wow. Um, who is one of the most iconic designers, certainly in the 80s, uh, along with Gautier and, and Terry Mugler, sort of the, the three, the sort of, uh, you the know, trifecta. Ter- the trifecta <laughs> of, 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 of sort of new design, I guess, in, in Paris. And, and this is, you have to remember, this is, uh, so I, all, all through St. Martin's, and I would still do this if I could get away with it, but all through St. Martin's, I used to wear full makeup. I had orange hair. I had platform shoes. I had like very... We uh, need pictures, Keenan. I'm going to Google it. <laughs> you'll find some of them on the internet. I mean, the, I have a great picture somewhere of myself with a, a fashion editor, Hamish Bowles, and we were... Yes! In- Stop it. I love it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm looking uh, very uh, gender fluid, let's say. Yes. Um, but, you know, as part of that, that was, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, androgyny is a big element of my design uh, palette. You know, I think it's very interesting and um, it's very sort of culturally relevant today. Yeah. Um, but meeting Claude Montana, so I had like a uh, a diamante peaked uh, visor with all my orange hair coming out. Oh my god! With a, a coat that looks like a dress. I mean, it's very like the era of Boy George and all of that, you know. And 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 Claude, I have a great picture where Claude's looking at me, like giving me the sideways glance, like, "What is this?" But I he, love it. He was he was lovely, and we also met Mary Quant, who's one of the wow. Of, of British fashion. Wow! It was all at this event, you know. So again, kudos to my my 
former teacher, who I'm still very close with, Natalie, um, for kind of taking us to something like that and in introducing us to real icons of the industry, you know, who sort of, and again, they demystified what fashion was because they were pretty regular. I mean, Claude, Claude was a little bit strange, but they were pretty, you know, Mary Crump was was uh, was pretty regular person, you know. So it was just really fabulous. And um, and I, I do find, you know, there's a magic in fashion. There's definitely mm. magic. Uh, there are there are a lot of really magical people that you meet along the way. You know, you've had some of them on your show, um, and and that's to be treasured. You know, it, yeah. it's, uh, for all that we criticise fashion for, mm. uh, there are there are some really magical things that happen that don't happen in other areas of the arts. You know, it's it's a unique uh, um, collision of creativity and commerce yes. that, that is is uh, very particular uh, to what we do. I love it. I I love it. That's so beautiful. And (laughs) I I know I'm supposed to close right now, but one last question, Keenan. Your thoughts on the the Met Gala part one. It's right around the corner uh, this September. What are your thoughts on uh, the direction and the theme? I mean, to be honest with you, I've never really been a fan of the Met Gala. Um, mm. you know, I mean, I, 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 and that's just a personal thing. It's, yeah. it, it's, it, it's sort of changed in its nature as well. It's yeah. become very much a marketing exercise, you know, has, as have the Oscars, um, you know, yeah. the red carpet, the Oscars. Um, so I think, you know, I would like to see the Met Gala look at itself in the way that the greater fashion industry is also really trying to reassess what it is, what it stands for, what it should stand for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the Met Gala is the ultimate velvet rope. I mean, I know why it exists and I respect why it yeah, exists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fundraiser. Yeah. Again, as a sort of, you know, as, as a sort of outsider, let's say, um, it's not something I've ever aspired to attend. I mean, no. there, there are some beautiful creations and yeah. there's some great expression there and so on. Um, but I, I, I would, you know, and maybe that's maybe that's going to happen in these coming years. I yeah. would like to see it really addressed a lot of the, the the sort of issues that we have in society today. Me um, too. I'm like, uh, I didn't really see it in the preview for part one, but I'm hoping in fe- what is it May or February? I can't remember um, for part two. Yeah, they'll address that. I'm hoping. I mean, it's it's, and I hope you know. You saw a couple of years ago where suddenly every brand had a T-shirt that said the future is female. Yeah. It was very, it was very heavy-handed, like kind of performative way of making that statement. I mean, it's great to make the statement, but uh, making a few T-shirts in your line isn't really going to change anything. Absolutely. Right? Do that. But also you need to do, you need to make the harder um, decisions for, for a brand or for an entity too. And um, so I think, you know, again, with sustainability, there's a lot of performative stuff going on in the industry yeah. where people are, are flying a flag. But, you know, are they really in the long term going to execute that change? And it's, you know, it is really questionable because a lot of big companies can't move that fast. Yeah. You know, and, and um, but, you know, I would I would that's what all I would say on the Met Gala is I would love to for it to to truly try to be a change agent. Um, and, and not just in a performative way, but in a very yeah. real way. 
you know. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you so much, Keenan, for being yeah. on the show. My pleasure. It's a, it's a an honor. It's an no, honor. it's an honor for me. Like I, I need a, I need another book from you, just like <laughs> on your entire life, like from the beginning, like basically everything we talked about today, but like extended into like 150 or 200 pages. That's all. I think, I think you know, <laughs> fashion is is really a great uh, industry to be involved in. And um, it's a great place for expression. I've really enjoyed, you know, being part of it. I, I, I hope, I mean, I've kind of, you know, I kind of came and did what I wanted to do in a sense, yeah. um, but I'm still very much involved in it. And, you know, I think for young designers today, they should feel optimistic about where the industry is today and the future of it too. Because I think for all of the sort of negative things that we see that are real, yeah. um, there's, there's a real opportunity for positive change too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Keenan. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for this week of a fashion moment. If you like what you hear, we'd love for you to join our community of listeners and spread the word about the show. We also want to hear from you. Share your favorite fashion moments and dream guests with us by sending an audio clip or email to a fashion moment podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tag us on Instagram at a fashion moment and you could be featured on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and let us know what you think. Until then, see you next time for another fashion moment. Podcast production by Rebecca Rashid and John Taylor Williams. Digital media production by Megan Porras. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Patrick Patrickios for their song, Hot Coffee.